Podcastle, episode 187, for December 13th, 2011, Ties of Silver, by James L. Sutter. Rated R for some strong language, and also a little bit of violence. Hello, and welcome back to Podcastle. I'm Dave Thompson, and today we've got a story featuring the were, which leads me to ask... When did werewolves and other members of the were family become second-class citizens in the paranormal romance and urban fantasy genres? You Twilight fans who listen to this podcast, I know there must be some of you, you know what I'm talking about. Jacob's werewolf never really had a chance, did he? And True Blood? Come on. Sure, Sam the bartender was cute, but werewolves didn't show up in full force until season three. You know, when Suki was between her fang-bang fascination of vampires. What? Why are you looking at me like that? I enjoy reading the reviews on io9. I do realize that I'm talking about contemporary paranormal fantasies, and I suppose that's part of the problem. When I think of the classics of vampire fiction, it's easy, right? Dracula, Interview with the Vampire, I Am Legend... When we think of werewolves, it's harder for me to point to a defining piece of fiction or cinema. The Wolfman, I guess? An American werewolf in London? For every skin trade, there's a dozen popular fantasy series where the were are just the supporting cast. And so werewolves and their ilk get the shaft. Not in today's story, though. Well, not exactly. This week, Podcastle's proud to present Ties of Silver by James L. Sutter, originally published in The Beast Within 2, Predators and Prey. James L. Sutter is a co-creator of the Pathfinder role-playing game campaign setting as well as the fiction editor for Paizo Publishing. He's also the author of the brand spanking new fantasy novel Death's Heretic, available now in bookstores. I got a chance to pick that bad boy up myself down at the World Fantasy Con earlier this year, and I'm reading it right now. If you dig church-appointed monster assassins in your sword and sorcery, check this one out. You can find James online at jameslsutter.com or on Twitter at jameslsutter. The story's read for you by our favorite street magician down in New Orleans, V.O. Bloodfrost, who read our miniature Blood Willows over the summer. He said something about buying beignets and coffee, but I'm 99% sure that part of the email was just for me, friends. You can follow him on Twitter, at VBloodFrost. So welcome to the Throp. Enjoy the story. Ties of Silver, written by James L. Sutter. Harris always found me when I was at my worst. Not... That was particularly difficult. The way I figured it, I had been at my worst for going on three years. And if there was reason to expect a change, nobody had clued me in. In this case, I was sleeping off an evening of hard drinking and harder words. The latter contributing to the egg-sized knot on the back of my head. Turned out, folks in the skin bars didn't take kindly to a fur running his mouth. Blue skid or otherwise. There was no way to tell how much of my headache had come from the bruise, and how much had been the brew. Still, I was at my desk when Harris arrived. 
I may have been half drunk, worked over and counting each heartbeat as it lanced through the back of my skull, but I was no deadbeat. Jesus, Terry, he said. You look like hell. At least I have an excuse, I replied. What's yours? And don't call me that. Harris sighed and seated himself in the only other chair. He was middle-aged and balding with the soft cheeks of a man who'd never lost his baby fat, just converted it. His uniform was drab brown, save for the full moon insignia on the shoulder, and his gut hung over his gun belt as if trying to hide it. Jackson, then, he said. But the observation stands. I heard you got thrown out of Omeras last night. It's still a free city. I can get thrown out of any bar I want. Harris held up his hands, palms out. Fair enough. I didn't come here to hassle you. Which, of course, raised its own question. So, why did you come here, Harris? I'm not due to check in for another month, and there's nothing in my parole against getting royally trashed. If there were, you wouldn't be here. Harris's voice was matter-of-fact. I'm here to talk to you about a job. Given that I already had a job, I was sitting at a desk, wasn't I? It took me a second to understand. When I did, the force of my laugh set sparklers dancing behind my eyes. You've got to be kidding. Harris waved at the door that still stood half-open. According to the sign, you're a security consultant. That's what it says. The words had an edge to them. Harris knew I'd gone straight, and he knew why. He patted the air with one meaty hand. Calm down, Jackson. I'm not here to bust you. As far as I know, you're clean. Model citizen. And that's why the Bureau needs your help. So... It really was the Bureau. Interesting. Explain. Instead, he looked me up and down, scrutinizing my face, the stained jacket, the battered fedora. You on the tink, Jackson? The nerve. In response, I spit on the back of my hand and rubbed smearing off the remains of last night's foundation, then held it up so he could see the blue-gray flesh underneath. What do you think? He nodded, but there was no apology. And how old's your supply? When was the last time you picked some up? That stopped me for a moment, and I thought about it. Maybe... Three months. Why? Harris leaned back in his chair and suddenly looked very tired. A lot's changed in the last three months, Jackson. Lycanthropes have started dropping dead. Heart attacks and seizures. Shiftech's been remarkably quiet on the subject. The whole throat is buzzing. I mulled that over. Shiftech was the sole provider of, quote, Shift-controlling solutions, end quote, more commonly called tincture, or the tink, 
in the region, thanks to a contract with the Bureau itself. You think they're selling bad tink? Harris shrugged. Officially, of course not. There's no evidence to suggest it, and a rash of heart attacks among the lycanthrope population isn't going to rally a bunch of human politicians into requesting an inquest. He spread his hands. Unofficially. Everything started to make more sense. You want me to go in, find out what's going on. The Bureau man folded his hands across his stomach. You've done it before. Slip in and find us enough evidence of wrongdoing, substandard components, improper cutting of the tincture, any sort of paper trail we can use to start our own investigation. You've done it before. My answer was swift and tactful. Fuck you, Harris. He ignored me. You have the opportunity to help every lycanthrope in this city, Jackson. We can't get in there without sufficient evidence, but every day that goes by, another fur is going to drop dead of an unrelated heart attack. And maybe he's better off for it. I rubbed at the knot on the back of my head. What's in it for me? In response, Harris stood, brushing non-existent dust off his pants. He pushed the chair in neatly, then looked me square in the eye. Robert. My breath caught. At the edges of my vision, familiar red waves began to pulse and close in. Tink be damned. You filthy pathetic! That's not a threat. Harris said evening. We're not going to hurt him. Quite the opposite. You make this run, and we'll drop your parole and commute Robert's sentence, releasing him to your family's care. He lifted his chins to indicate the remodeled storage closet that was both office and apartment. We'll help get you out of this dump and let you join society for real. I leaned over the desk and put my head in my hands. Get out, I said, but even I could hear the acceptance in my voice. The door squeaked as Harris opened it. Get your team together, Jackson. The sooner, the better. Then the door swung shut, and I was alone. The day was warm and the city stank of asphalt and exhaust as I crossed the aptly named Boundary Avenue and got in line at the checkpoint. The brown uniform cops gave me a cursory hassling, making me take off my hat to display the tufts at the top of my ears, but the identification I showed was legit, straight from the bureau, and they let me through without further fuss. Around me... The throat rose up in all its squalid glory. The buildings here, crumbling tenements and narrow walk-up shops, were no taller than those in the rest of the city, but the closeness with which they were packed together made the street feel like a canyon. Here, the exhaust was notably absent. No cars allowed in the throat lest someone shift forms while driving, 
replaced by the kennel reek of wet fur and shit. I walked quickly down the center of the street, the pavement there raised to help sluice filth down into the gutters when it rained. The street was full, as it always was, only ten blocks to a side. The thrope was barely big enough to contain its thousands of residents, and most folks would rather spend a warm day outside than confined in the few square feet of personal space that the Bureau of Lycanthropic Affairs dubbed Adequate Living Accommodations. The sidewalk roiled with vendors and shoppers, old men playing chess, and kids tearing around in games of tag, both four-legged and two. In the corners, already unconscious or getting there as quickly as possible, lay the drunks and homeless, many of them ferals, their shaggy coats matted with blood and vomit. Overhead, matriarchs old and young leaned out of windows, gossiping across varying heights in the gulf of the street. The cat's cradle of clotheslines strung between them, reminded me of one of my first excursions out of the throop, and how I'd climbed hand over hand along such lines to avoid the Bureau men. I saw several other blueskins, men and women, on the tink, habitual drinkers of the colloidal silver that kept them from shifting forms and allowed them access to the rest of the city. Unlike me, they didn't bother to hide the metallic build-up that turned their skin and nails blue-gray. Many of those I saw wore the brown shirts of capos, the Bureau's liaisons and informers inside the thrope. Some carried themselves with a cocksure swagger of bully boys, but more laughed and chatted with friends among the normal lycanthrope population. Remember... My grandfather had said, Capos or not, they're still your people. I remembered all right, but my hands still clenched into fists. A little girl, no more than five or six, but already displaying the slight facial down to noting a feline shifter, approached me, holding a homemade hat. The fabric had clearly been scavenged from someone's shirt, in painstakingly sewn and ironed into shape. It was hideous. I smiled and patted her on the head. Not today, little one, I said, tipping my fedora. The girl gave me a gap-toothed grin and stood aside without a word. The ten men I'd wanted were several blocks in, deep enough into the throop that the glass and steel of the surrounding city was visible only from the sagging roof. I considered the front door for a moment, where two girls with braids played tug-of-war with a brown-furred boy in wolf form, then thought better of it, and moved over to the fire escape. The metal squealed as I caught the lowest rung, but held together as I hauled myself up past one story, then another. The fire escapes weren't built by the Bureau, and it showed. The system of ladders and graded landings was cobbled together out of everything from rebar to old shopping carts pounded flat. The city's human officials hadn't thought the matchbox apartment buildings needed such amenities, 
But after the eight block fire of my childhood brought three buildings down with all hands, the local organizers had remedied the situation with whatever was available. Four stories up, I stopped on the narrow landing and pressed myself against the wall, peeking one eye around the windowsill. Inside, the room was more or less how I remembered it. A few drawings on the wall, a much treasured photograph from Greece, a ratty easy chair, and the last sat a short thin man, eyes closed and head leaned back. I tapped on the glass. The man in the chair jerked awake. He looked around for a moment, eyes wide. Then he saw me waving from beyond the window. Immediately, he rose and hurried over, throwing the sash wide. Jackson, Jesus, you almost gave me a heart attack. Up close, Rennie was even shorter and thinner than I remembered, though he'd grown his hair out a bit and it made his protruding ears look more natural. His voice was high, and his face still had trouble holding an expression, nose and lips twitching involuntarily. He smiled and looked about to speak again, but I shushed him and motioned him out onto the landing. Once he was out, I let the window close down to a crack. Is she here? I asked. Rennie bobbed his head. Sure. She's laying down in the other room. Been taking a lot of naps these days. He paused. She'd love to see you, Jax. No time right now, I said, tasting the lie. This is business. Business. Rennie looked confused for a moment. Then his big eyes narrowed. No. No way. What the hell are you into, Jackson? Haven't you lost enough? I gritted my teeth, but kept my voice calm. This is different, Ren. This is for the Bureau. The Bureau? I would have thought it was possible for Reddy's voice to get any higher, but it did. Lips twitched back to reveal oversized incisors. You better not be telling me you've gone capo. Times are tough for everyone, but Bureau money ain't worth wiping your ass with. His delicate hands curled into claws. I'm happy to drop by and look in on your mind, Jax. Lord knows someone needed to after you lit out. I can even handle you going on a tink. But if you're telling me you're on the Bureau dole, you best climb back down where you can still use your hands. It was a good speech, but pointless. Shut up, Rennie, I said. It's about Bobby. Rennie had been my best friend and second in command for as long as I could remember. We'd started out running the cordon together as kids, for no reason beyond the sheer schutzpah of it. From there, we'd quickly graduated to minor smuggling, stealing higher quality, lower tax products from outside the throope, and bringing them back in to be distributed when we felt magnanimous and sold when we didn't. We arranged covert meetings between furs and skins, servicing those human girls who wanted to make it with a lycanthrope, and educating the skin gangs who thought folks from the throop were easy prey. Along the way, Rennie had grown from a shy kid with a nervous twitch to the best wire and ink man I'd met. While he could never match me for strength or speed, 
He can take apart any machine ever built. Or forge you an ID so perfect, you'd swear you remember sitting for the photo at the bureau. As children, it was a rush. As teenagers, it was business. And as newly minted adults, it became something more idealistic. By that point, Rennie and I had attracted a tight-knit little social group, and our job started getting more political. We ditched petty theft in favor of organizing pro-integration rallies, communicating with forward-thinking skins on the outside, and bashing up those shops and politicians who spoke against us. In a way, we were everything the anti-integration folks claimed, angry, unpredictable, and dangerous. As much as we resented the throp, we loved the thrill of crossing its borders, running from the brown shirts and disappearing into the war in the valleys and apartments. And then, it all went wrong. Shiftech had been the main tincture supplier for the city even back then, and therefore almost as hated as a Bureau of Lycanthropic Affairs. Thanks to them, all lycanthropes had a chance to integrate with human society, but only by chemically restricting themselves to their human forms, the silver turning them blue and calling them out as second-class citizens. What could be more insulting? In my kinder moments, I tell myself, I can't remember who first suggested breaking into the shift tech corporate headquarters, but in the dead of night, the bottle's only half empty, I knew it was me. We made it in, a whole caterwauling crew of us. We considered it a fine protest. Fires in their file cabinets, shit smeared on their computers, integrationist posters on their ceilings, a regular barbarian sacking of Alexandria. When the alarm started going off, we melted back into the night, dancing around the bumbling bureau officers as we crossed the walled ring of Boundary Street and flung ourselves back into the comfortable rat hole of the throat. Only this time, it didn't work that way. Someone, no one ever said who, didn't make it home clean. And the Bureau caught up with them. They started naming names. Not a lot, but enough. I was in the apartment when the door shattered. No knock. They knew better than to give a runner like me any warning. Just a kick that turned the paper-thin particle ball to splinters. The five Bureau officers came in fast, with guns drawn. My mother didn't know what to do. God love her. Despite more than ten years of housing a genuine outlaw, she still didn't believe it. Though in her heart, she must have known otherwise. An agent pushed her roughly down into the old armchair where she sat crying, My sons! My sons! No one in particular. Though I'd never been nicked before, I'd seen the procedure often enough. I put my hands on the back of my head and spread my legs. Apparently, deciding that my actions indicated a fundamental lack of appreciation for the solemnity of the situation, 
The lead bureau agent grabbed me by the hair and slammed me, face first into the wall. That was when Bobby came out of the kitchen. Ferals are a fact of life. Everybody accepts it, even if the best researchers on either side of the throat walls can't say exactly why it happens. For perhaps every fifty normal lycanthrope births, there's one who's born feral, unable to change into his human form, and never quite gaining the wits of a regular fur. Physicians sometimes compared it to Down syndrome, though human disabilities activists fumed at the perceived insult. In the throat, families quietly took care of their own, socializing the ferals as best they could. My brother Bobby was about as smart as a Labrador retriever and twice as loyal. I loved him with all my heart. With a snarl, Bobby lunged at the officer who grabbed me and sank his teeth into the man's forearm. Another man reached out to help and Bobby dropped and spun, teeth tearing through the back of the man's calf in an instinctive attempt to hamstring his attacker. Bobby... No! I moved to stop him, and the injured guard brought his revolver around in a wide arc, catching me in the side of the face and sending me to the ground. A gun fired. My mother screamed as a gout of blood exploded from Bobby's shoulder, the silver slug tearing through flesh. Bobby whimpered and fell, eyes wide with confusion. It's okay, I called out. But the words were a mouthful of blood and mush. Stay down. Then, an unidentified boot came down hard on my temple, and the world went black. In a concrete proof that God loves irony, no one involved with the shift tech break in served any time. It seemed that after I passed out, one of the lockup guards, a friend of the one Bobby had hamstrung, had gone a little overboard on me, and the Bureau wasn't eager to explain in court how a man who arrived at the station unconscious managed to break three ribs and an arm while alone in a cell. I was released with ten years parole. Bobby, on the other hand, was an attempted cop killer. Never mind that he couldn't understand his rights as they were read or the judge's sentence as it was delivered. The last any of us saw of him, he was being led off in silver-plated chains, a sad-eyed threat to the common good. All right, Rennie said when I finished explaining. Screw it. I'm in. For Bobby. For Bobby, I agreed. But we're going to need at least one more. What about Schneider? Rennie shook his head. Married now. You've been out of the throuple while, Jax. He and Jen have a baby on the way. Okay, then, Eli. Nobody's seen him for months. He's almost as bad as you. There was a moment of awkward silence, and from the way Rennie shifted from foot to foot, I could tell he had something more to say. Who? I asked. He tugged at one sleeve. It's just, well, she's been around recently. Carla, 
Of course she had. Jesus Christ, Ren. Why don't you just shoot me now and save us both the hassle? All I'm saying is that she's around, and she can do the job. More importantly... But whatever was more important was cut off by a rising cry from within the house. Terrence? Terrence! The window shut open, and then five feet of house dress and support stockings were struggling to squeeze through the narrow space. Jesus, Ma, take it easy. You're going to hurt yourself. I grabbed one fleshy arm and helped guide her carefully out onto the landing. She ignored my warning and threw herself at me, crushing me to her with surprising strength. My son, you come home. Only for a minute, Ma. I can't stay. She looked up at me, fleshy face a mass of fresh wrinkles that hadn't been there the last time. Never stay? Why you never come home? Her accent was always thicker when she was emotional. I'm working, Ma. I needed to talk to Rennie. I've got a job he can help me on. A legitimate one. Out in the city. She bobbed her head. Work is good. My boy's not lazy. Good boys. Then she squinted, suddenly suspicious. You take tincture? Drink the silver? I sighed. You know I have to. They won't let anyone leave the throop otherwise. So why leave? She swung an arm, not seeming to notice that her gesture took in only leaky apartment blocks and filthy streets. Stay here. Work here. Your people. Yeah, because there's so much opportunity here. I couldn't help the sarcasm, but I refused to rise to the bait any further. Sorry, Ma, but we really have to get going. I promise. I'll visit more when I can. Promises? She snorted. But before I could turn away, she grabbed my sleeve. Terrence, you... you see him? You see Robert? Her eyes were wet. Unwilling to betray her heritage with a tink, she hadn't seen Bobby since the trial. In response... I pulled her close and hugged her, locking eyes with Rennie over the top of her head. Yeah, I lied. He's doing really well. They treat him well. Lots of exercise. Good. I could feel the warmth of tears through my shirt. And then she was grabbing both me and Rennie and pulling our faces down for kisses. Good boys. You work hard. Rennie and I made our goodbyes and began climbing down the fighter escape, moving quickly. Above us, my mother stood and watched us go. I didn't look back, but I didn't need to shift to hear her whisper. My sons. The bar was dark. Even in the middle of the afternoon, 
and I knew from long experience that the tenants liked it that way. Other than a few incandescent bulbs hanging from bare wires, the only light came slanting through the shuttered windows. As far as I knew, Gabby's had never opened its windows in my lifetime. Perhaps they were nailed shut. Most of the people in the bar, old men who needed a drink to start the day, and the young men who would eventually replace them, sat at round plywood tables scattered across the bare concrete floor. Only one person sat at the counter. She swiveled on her stool as we came in. Well, look what the rat dragged in. Carla was a perfect contrast to her surroundings. While Gabby's was dingy and drab, the off-white fabric of her halter top was spotless, straining to restrain the twin globes of her breasts. Her straight black hair was cropped short and parted deliberately to reveal the tips of rounded human ears. She crossed her legs, the denim of her jeans creaking and stretched to the breaking point by slim, toned thighs. Carla? Rennie said. We need to talk. She ignored him, continuing to stare levelly at me. So you're back. What brings you around? Business, I said. You sure it's not pleasure? She smiled, her perfect teeth somehow more predatory than any feral. Very, I said. I moved to the bar, and Rennie followed. I held up two fingers to the bartender, who sat shots in front of us without asking what we wanted, then promptly ignored us again. Carla looked me up and down. Still on the tank, I'm betting. Her tone was arch, but she kept her voice low. She might still be mad enough to give me shit, but not enough to get me lynched. Gabby's was an old man's bar, and that meant an old man's values. She was already pushing her luck trying to run her game here. I said nothing, and she frowned. Too bad, she said, and trailed a hand down my back before letting it drop. I've missed you. Maybe that was even true, I grunted. What are you doing out there, Jax? She asked, and this time her tone was gentler. Nobody out there cares about you. Here, you've got friends. Like you, I asked, sharper than I intended. She jerked back as if slapped and I kicked myself inwardly. It wasn't her fault. Carla was a fur chaser, born human. She'd realized early on that the average skin guy just wasn't going to cut it. Plenty of people fetishized lycanthropes, nothing like a little bestial passion in the bedroom. But Carla had it bad, especially for werewolves, as she so eloquently put it. Once you've been knotted by a wolf, anything else is just foreplay. So... After high school, she turned her back on the human world and dived hard into the throop, looking to run with a pack. For a while, 
captured one with mine. With me. The tink changed that. New fur meant new Carla. No exceptions. She'd go on her way, and I'd go on mine. Yeah, she said slowly, voice flat, like me. She turned to Rennie, acknowledging him for the first time. You said business? Quietly, Rennie laid out the situation. Carla listened intently, studiously ignoring me. I tried to return the favor, but the view, whenever she bent close, made it difficult. The last few years hadn't done Carla any disservice. Uh, so that's it, Rennie finished. The folks on the tank are dying, and the Bureau thinks it might be Shiftek's fault. Some people might say they deserve it, Carla observed, glancing casually in my direction. The price of turning your back on your family. I said as much myself back in the old gang. We'd let Carla speak the same sentiments, but that didn't mean she understood the difference between a human choosing to live in the thrope and a fur forced into it. Why someone might want to escape or forget. Maybe so, I said, jaw tight, but that's not the point. We're doing it for Bobby, Rennie pressed, to get him back home. Yeah, Carla agreed. For Bobby. I love that kid. But she was looking at me. The night was overcast, lit only by the street lamps, as Rennie and I huddled in the shelter of an alley filled with trash. Across the street, the concrete walls of Shiftek's corporate headquarters gleamed heroically beneath their own pinpoint spotlights. Two security guards lounged against the revolving front doors, fresh off their most recent circuit of the grounds. Come on, I whispered, popping my knuckles anxiously. Behind me, Rennie reached out a hand and touched my shoulder. Mm. Don't worry, he said. She'll come. As if on cue, a battered Ford limped around the corner, its engine screaming in protest. It gave one final lurch, then expired in a road directly across the deserted street from the office building. The hood popped up with a heavy click, and the driver's side door opened. Carla was in top form. The thin cloth of a partially unbuttoned dress shirt opened wide to reveal the pale half-moons of her breasts. Below, only the helpful shadows cast by the street lamps allowed the miniskirt to conceal anything at all. She looked at her car in disgust, kicked a tire daintily with one high-heeled foot, then turned and seemed to see the security guards for the first time. Hey! She called. Either of you know anything about cars? We didn't wait. As the guards hurried over to be of service, Rennie and I made our own furtive dash across the no-man's land of the road, fetching up against the wall, just out of sight around the building's corner. 
To one side of us was an unmarked door with no outside handle. To the other, dangerously close to visible from the guard's position, was a small ventilation grate, maybe eight feet up the wall. We worked without speaking. Birch carefully on my shoulders, Ruddy attacked the duck cover with a screwdriver. Fingers impossibly deft. The grating popped free with a screech, and he handed it down to me. I grimaced. There was nothing to be done about the noise, and with any luck, the security guards would be too busy inspecting the car and Carla to notice. Uh, ready? Rennie whispered. I gripped his leg in reply. He shifted. Through the fabric of his pants, I could feel his leg wither away to nothing, even as his shirt flopped down over my head. I grabbed at his shoes catching them before they could fall, and felt the tiny nails of his new feet dig into my shoulders and neck. I reached into my bag and handed up his bandolier of child-sized tools. He took them, then clambered down into my arms. When most people think of lycanthropes, they think of werewolves or felines. Were-rats rarely get much screen time in the movies, save maybe as comic relief, but in some ways, they're the most impressive. Brown-furred and no larger than a lapdog, Rennie stared up at me with unblinking black eyes. He adjusted his gear a final time, then tugged at my sleeve to show he was ready. I boosted him up, and he disappeared into the darkness of the duct. Now came the hard part. I shoved Rennie's clothes into my bag and flattened myself against the side of the building, doing my best to meld into the concrete. With any luck, it would take the guards several more minutes to locate the belt I'd broken in Carl's Ford. The unmarked door popped open, and a whiskered wedge of a face peeked out. Without hesitation, I moved inside and let the fire escape door swing closed behind me. Inside... The stairwell was bare and well lit. I paused for a moment to admire Rennie's handiwork on the door's rerouted alarm wires, then acceded to his impatient squeak and followed his bounding form up the stairs, climbing two flights to the top level. There was no alarm on the door into the offices, no internal security at all as far as I could tell. Cubicles glowed softly with LEDs and screensavers, and tall workbenches and humming machines along the far wall denoted a section of lab. Rennie suddenly bloated and expanded, fur and muzzle retracting until he stood in his human form again, totally at home in his scrawny nudity. Without bothering to dress, he moved toward the lab where... He could undoubtedly have better luck than I would understanding the science behind the tink. I hurried to the end of the corridor, where a section of glass walls housed the upper management offices. Clearly, selling furs their own sense of shame was still big business. The mahogany desks alone were probably worth as much as an entire throat tenement. I slid in behind one such masterpiece and tapped the computer's keyboard. The room erupted with alarm sirens. I looked over at Rennie, 
who was staring up round-eyed from a lab notebook. It wasn't me, he insisted. I couldn't imagine that simply touching the computer could have brought this on. I hadn't even entered a password yet, but it didn't matter. Time was short, and we still, the door we'd come through burst open, and half a dozen brown-uniformed bureau agents surged in, leading the charge was a familiar, pot-bellied form. Harris. As soon as I saw him, I understood. The Bureau didn't care about Bad Tink. Why would they? Every fur that checked out was one less responsibility for them. Bringing in some long-time lycanthrope agitators, on the other hand. Beyond the men, Rennie picked up a heavy-looking microscope. I stood and began moving down the hall, fingers flexing. For the first time in years, I wished I could still shift. Harris, I said, you lying bastard, you... Stop right there, Harris said, and I saw one of his men reach for a sidearm. I stopped. You set me up. Harris smiled, his doughy face radiating genuine warmth. Of course I did, Terry. And you should be thankful. What? Another bureau man came through the door, this one leading a snarling, spitting curler. The officer held her at arm's length with a practiced professional air. He turned to Harris. Security has been instructed to stand down, sir. They're deferring to the bureau. Good. Harris said, and took a pair of latex gloves from his back pocket. Glove up, everyone. One by one, each of the men produced their own gloves and proceeded to put them on. The one holding Carla gave her a stern look, then let her go and produced his own. I hope that car outside is stolen. Harris told Carla conversationally. Vehicles are remarkably easy to track. She glared at him and opened her mouth, but I interrupted whatever she was going to say. What the hell's going on, Harris? He smiled again, a middle-aged cherub. Isn't it obvious, Terry? Some lycanthrope troublemakers broke into Shift Tech headquarters looking for information about the rash of bad tink. Of course, even if they found some, there's no way that evidence would be admissible in court unlawful search and by a bunch of criminals at that, remarkably short-sighted. He stepped forward, moving past me, and over to a computer terminal where he sat and set gloved hands to keyboard. Naturally, with the Tink and Shiftek being a focus of so much conflict among the lycanthropes, it pays for the Bureau to keep an eye on their headquarters. When several suspected lycanthrope burglars entered the building tonight and triggered the alarms, we relieved private security and took control of the situation. And in doing so, we discovered some remarkably interesting things. He typed in a password, and the computer monitor hummed to life. The intruders were remarkably thorough, Harris continued, clicking rapidly through various windows on the screen. The documents they left open made it clear that they'd uncovered something big. And once we stumbled across them in the course of investigating the crime scene, well, that's probable cause, isn't it? It's our duty 
to investigate. Things began to make sense. All you needed was a break-in. Harris was positively beaming. The Bureau would never violate private property without evidence of a crime in progress. But since we didn't manage to apprehend any suspects, we might as well follow up on the new evidence, no? He raised his voice. Let's get to work, boys. As smooth as a drill team, the other uniformed men spread out across the office and began turning on computers and rifling through files with gloved hands. Carla looked around in astonishment as she found herself suddenly unattended in the middle of the hallway. Rennie looked almost as startled. Harris entered the last command on the computer, then swiveled his chair to look at me. When he spoke, his voice was soft. Take your friends and get out of here, Terry. And for God's sake, don't let anyone see you. Harris waited for us in a convenient store parking lot, one block up from Boundary and the north edge of the throat. He was still in uniform, but this time there was no posse, just him, a patrol car, and a furred shape sitting at his feet. Bobby's tail started wagging as soon as Carl and I came into view. By the time we were halfway across the deserted lot, his whole aft end was twisting violently back and forth. We stopped, perhaps twelve feet away, careful to stay where Rennie could see us from the dumpster across the street, and Bobby began making high, joyful whining noises through the plastic muzzle holding his jaw shut. Get that off of him, I snapped. Harris nodded and leaned down, unsnapping the restraints. The moment he was free, Bobby shot across the intervening space and leaped into my arms, giving sharp little barks and bathing my face with his tongue. Hey, buddy, I said softly, running my hands through the fur behind its ears. Hey, it's okay. It's good to see you, too. Bobby twisted and turned his affection to Carla, and I passed him awkwardly over, returning my gaze to Harris. The officer was smiling. Thank you, I said, both hating and meaning it. You kids did good last night, Harris said, inclining his head. We've got more than enough evidence on shift deck to begin a formal inquiry. You should be proud, though I would advise bragging about it. Noted, I replied. So, are we done here? In response, Harris reached into a pocket and tossed something small and thin in my direction. I caught it reflexively. It was a government-issue identification card with my name and photograph on it. What's this? I demanded. Read it. I scanned down the card, confirming my height, weight, eye color, and more. It wasn't until I'd reached a bold line at the bottom that I understood. Race. Human. I looked up. The best forgeries are the ones that aren't, Harris observed. Call it a clerical error. 
I stared at him. As far as the Bureau's concerned, you're out of the system, Terry. He split his hands. Don't bring any attention to yourself, and we'll never have a reason to change that. You can live anywhere you want, be whatever you want. Human. No more fur ghetto. No more second-class citizenship. Being passed over for jobs and harassed by bureau agents. Just a normal, unremarkable human citizen. I looked at Carla, her eyes wide, leaned down at Bobby. He was sitting on his haunches once more, tongue lolling out of his mouth with delight. He stared up at me. With a flick of my wrist, I threw the card back. It fluttered across the parking lot and landed in a puddle on the concrete. Harris's mouth dropped open. Thanks, I said, but I think I already know what I want. I turned to Carla and extended my hand. She gawked for a moment, then took it, a slow smile spreading across her face. At our feet, Bobby gave a single short bark. Come on, I said, patting him on the head with my free hand. Let's go home. Together, the three of us turned and began walking back toward Boundary and the gray wall of the throop. Against my rough palm, Carla's hand was warm and smooth. It would take days for the tink to get fully out of my system, but already I could feel the hummingbird flutter of her heartbeat through her fingers. Here, the gentle scuffle as Runny emerged from his hiding place to follow us. I lifted my head and sniffed hard, smelling the garbage and exhaust, the sun on pavement. It was going to be a good day. And welcome back. When Vash, our narrator for this one, sent in his recording, he also emailed me a proverb from a Hindu monk. We learn, after we die, that the demons that were tearing us apart in life were really the angels trying to free us. I like that. Don't accept their cards or their legitimacy in place of who we are. Thanks, Vash, and thanks, James, for the story. Speaking of proverbs and monks, feedback this week is for Ben Burgess's Still Small Voice, a tale of dragons and religious persecution, read by David Reese Thomas, our fourth podcastle original. Generally, people dug it. Secret Pilgrim said this was an excellent narrative about how religion, like myths and other tools of man's quest for meaning and purpose, is a double-edged sword. It can give comfort and structure, but it can also hurt and destroy. Devoted135 said, The metaphor of the dragons was very well done. The concept that sure, you can capture an idea and bend it to your will, but imagine where it could take you once the chains are released, and you let it take flight is a really engaging one. Thanks very much for those comments. Let us know what you thought of this week's story over at forum.escapeartist.net. We'd love to hear from you. If you like what we're doing, please consider visiting podcastle.org and making a donation. 
Your money goes to paying our authors so they don't have to rely on government-mandated doses of tink and can howl at the moon whenever they please. And if you're one of our paid subscribers, well, we've got some extra cool stuff coming your way soon. Yeah, yeah, you know about the Alphabet Quartet, I know. But we've got some other cool extra stories just for you, as our way of saying thanks. If you can't afford to donate, no worries. Maybe tell a friend or write a shiny review on iTunes for us. Thanks. And a special thanks to Dan Albrecht Malinger, our featured donor of the week. He's a field biologist who made a wish for a fantasy fiction podcast when he was going out on a boat to study Bahamas rock iguanas and presto, he found us. He emailed us to say that after two years of underpaid internships in exotic locations, I finally have a real job and money to thank you for all the times you delivered great stories to me. I've bounced around so many places without libraries, I would have gone bonkers if it weren't for the fiction you guys produced. Dan, thanks so much for that, man. Welcome to our IMF team. That's Impossible Mission Fantasticus, for those of you keeping track. Well, that's our show for this week. On behalf of everyone here at Podcastle, Anne Leckie, Peter Wood, Anna Schwind, and myself, I want to thank you for letting us share another story with you. We'll be back next time with a very special Christmas episode, a brand new Podcastle original, wrapped up for you in ribbons and bows by Heather Shaw and Tim Pratt. Until then, remember, don't call us snake. We'll see you in a week. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of Podcastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Jim Morrison said, The most important kind of freedom is to be what you really are. You trade in your reality for a role. You trade in your sense for an act. You give up your ability to feel and in exchange put on a mask. There can't be any large-scale revolution until there's a personal revolution on an individual level. It's got to happen inside first. <laughs>